demanding the right to be equal gets presented by those who are dominant as a challenge to their privileges. So it is a conflict between rights and privileges. Welcome to Surviving Society with Chantel Lewis and Tiso Regis. Executively produced by Georgia Fori Addo. If you enjoy the podcast and find it useful for your ever-expanding sociological imagination, please support us via Patreon. If not, you can always support us by sharing, subscribing, rating and reviewing. Welcome to another episode of Surviving Society podcast. We are really excited today to be joined by Professor John Holmwood, who is a sociologist, a brilliant one at that and is here today to talk to us about the Trojan horse affair. But prior to talking about that, it's worth saying that John was the previous president between 2012 and 2014 of the British Sociological Association. How would you describe it, John, the BSA? It's the uh, Professional Association of Sociologists in academia, but also uh, uh, researchers outside academia, anybody with an interest in the discipline in Britain. Very comprehensive. Thank you for that, John. I'm going to write that down, actually, next time someone <laughs> asks me about the BSA is. Anyway, big up the BSA. So today we're going to be talking about the Trojan horse affair, to which John has been interested in sociologically, but was also part of an expert witness for the teachers involved in the Trojan horse affair. It's a really interesting conversation that I think we're about to have because we're thinking about public sociology, the role of academics within trying to possibly bring around about social justice. Um, so John, yeah, thank you so much um, for coming on the show. Well, thank you for inviting me. The Trojan horse affair, in, so it's in 2014, there were documents alleging a conspiracy to quote-unquote Islamicise Birmingham schools and these these documents were leaked to the media and caused a national quote-unquote scandal like it's, it's so hard like trying to explain the specifics of what happened without trying to do the work of those that have in my perspective guilty of Islamophobia. John how would you describe the Trojan horse? The quickest summary is that it is that of a false claim about as you said, a plot to Islamicise schools. It's focused on Birmingham, but the claim is that the plot extended from Birmingham to Bradford and to Oldham and also to Tower Hamlets. So although it has a focused set of consequences in Birmingham, it has lots of ripple-out effects, particularly for Muslim communities and especially for those who want to work with schools, either as teachers or as governors. So a lot of governors were eased off governing bodies as a consequence of it. At its core in Birmingham, it was argued to involve 21 schools and hundreds of teachers. But when it starts to unfold, it comes to focus on just four schools, schools associated with one school, Parkview Academy Trust, its chair of governors to hear alarm and teachers associated with that school who are uh, seconded into uh, three other schools in, in Birmingham. So that's the core of the plot. So the core of the plot is very small. The moral panic is very large. 
but it takes about three years from 2014 through to 2017 for it to unfold and reduce its scale to these core schools. But in the meantime, the government passes a lot of legislation associated with schooling, associated with the prevent agenda. So it also has consequences for everybody. Thank you so much for that summary, John. In more recent weeks, we had Tarek Yunus come on the show talking to us about mental health and prevent. And I feel like one of the things that this case does, and you're writing on this case in particular, the Trojan Horse Affair, it shows sort of another micro example of how prevent has has marginalised so many Muslim communities within the UK. And Growing up in the West Midlands, like Islamophobia and particularly imaginings of um, Muslim schools within the Birmingham area was such a normative kind of discourse when I was growing up. Reading about what happened with Trojan Horse and how it got picked up by the media and how it was sponsored by effectively by the government, constant like moral panic, hate, what I want to call it anyway, was just so embedded in parts of where I grew up. So it just really followed on from that 2001 one multicultural Britain, integration Britain. And then you get these kind of micro examples of what that actually means and how governments set the goalposts on what British values, who belongs in Britain, who doesn't, who is othered. When I think back of Trojan Horse incident, how it affected my area, so my area being Tower Hamlets, always an understanding from outsiders is this Tower Hamlets had become a no-go area. It was part of that discourse that Trevor Phillips spoke about, about sleepwalking to segregation. Growing up there, you would get from the people who were, for want of a better word, in inverted commas, the natives who were mainly white. They were around before like mass immigration of the, of the Bangladesh population into, into East London. So there was always a sense that these people were living apart from us. They're changing the character of the area, changing the, the, very, the very fabric of us, of the society that it was in. So then when I looked at what was happening in North, I, I could understand how certain people viewed it internally. That didn't necessarily mean that that's what was going on, but I could understand that this process of change that was happening, it was hard for people to understand. In my area, in predominantly, there was schools that became 90, 96%, 97% Bangladeshi. And the effect on people, especially people who were considered born in that area, it was it's almost traumatic. And so it's trying to reconcile these kind of movements. And so when Trevor Phillip was speaking, when saying stuff like that, it would I would take that personally because I grew up in a effectively a multicultural area. It was never a problem until people start putting it out that people live separately. Yeah, and I was going to say to you, like your perspective on the changes in the East End of London and some white people seeing that as something that's sort of traumatic and changed, mm-hmm. like a big change for them. But I feel like this comes back to the point that we've said before is that actually when you have a government and a media that sponsors mm-hmm. these narratives of an us and them, an outsider, an outsider within, all this, when you have that those levels of Islamophobia, like, yeah, you know, like conviviality in the day-to-day, it's real, it's, it's living and breathing like that is a reality but when you have like the things that I think hopefully John's going to talk to us to you can see how that creates like these tensions which are just not based on anything material. In a way I think it's even worse because the schools that became the focus of, of concern were actually extraordinarily successful and they became 
successful over a period. And as they became successful, so they had more difficulty in recruiting non-Muslim pupils into the school. So when you talk about segregation, what's assumed is self-segregation on behalf of the ethnic minority population, but it's actually self-segregation on behalf of the white population. So uh, Parkview School, which is at the the centre, was in by 2012 98.9% Muslim in one of the poorest areas of Birmingham, which means one of the poorest areas of uh, of England. In 1996, it had 2% of its pupils getting A to C at GCSE. So that's really poor. And it was featured in a very unpleasant documentary called uh, Underclass in Perda, featured that school and one other school in uh, Bradford as really uh, problematic places. That was the stimulus for the head of governors to hear alarm, to decide to devote himself to education within that community. It was the school that he had gone to and he decided to participate in uh, trying to turn it around. By 2012, it was in the top 14% of all schools in the country. 76% of uh, pupils getting grades A to C at uh, GCSE. 73% of its pupils were on free school meals. Just 7.5% had English as a first language at home. These were actually absolutely extraordinary results. It was the most improved school in Birmingham and one of the best schools in Birmingham. And yet they couldn't get anybody other than pupils from the area surrounding it to go to it. That's an area of about one kilometre around the school. All the pupils came from that area and it had fantastic results. And if I could just give one anecdotal story, a teacher was being interviewed for a job at the school. This was early on in the change process. And in the interview process, he was asked, how would you improve the results at this school? And he looked out of the window and he said, I wouldn't take children from here. That was the context in which the school was set. So it ought to have been an incredible cause for celebration, not simply that, well, this was a, a, you know, a segregated area. This was a school overcoming all the things associated with segregation to produce children who were incredibly well equipped to participate and break out, out of the situation. There's one other school, I'll just say, because this was a secondary school. There's another school in Birmingham called uh, King David's, which is uh, an Orthodox Jewish school. It's close by, or relatively uh, close to, to this area. It has real difficulty because of the fallen number of uh, Jews in uh, Birmingham in recruiting Jewish children to the to the school. It's a successful school. It's 64% Muslim. 
So when you ask questions about religious tolerance, Muslims are willing for their children to go to a Jewish school because they liked the moral ethos of the school. That successful Jewish school was not maintained by white secular parents and their children. It was maintained by other ethnic minority uh, parents and pupils. So you have this language, well, you know, Muslims, you know, partly what understands where it comes from. Muslims, Jews, you know, they don't get up. Well, they do in Birmingham, and they did in Birmingham, and they do in most places in Britain. The problem is a secular anxiety about religion. And there what we see is that uh, Britain as a whole is becoming less religious, but ethnic minorities in Britain are more religious than other, you know, than the, the, the mainstream population. They are younger and have more children in school. So consequently, schools look as if they're catering to a group of parents who are different from what even, you know, from what a secular middle class expects. So it wasn't simply that the conservative media was hostile. There was actually hostility from the liberal media because they didn't like the religiosity of the school and bluntly are uneasy about the religiosity of some ethnic minority communities. Yeah. People who we feel, we feel should know better, the liberals, for example, the liberal media, are kind of almost play a a role that's like just as problematic as the sort of right-wing media. They kind of create an almost respectability around their uneasiness about religion. Well, this was true amongst a lot of sociologists. So let's just say sociologists are closer to that liberal secular position. I'm a secular person myself, atheist and so on. And when I spoke to colleagues within sociology and said, look, you realise there's no such thing as a secular school in Britain. And the response would immediately, but there should be. And I'd say, but, you know, forget for a moment whether there should be. There is no such thing as a secular school in Britain. All schools have to teach religion. All schools have to have daily acts of collective worship. It's set up as primarily of a Christian character, But if that's not suitable, given the intake of the school and segregation within schools means that it won't be suitable for the intake of some schools, then they can get agreement to have collective worship of an Islamic or Hindu or other kind. And that's separate of the issue of being a faith school or not. This is true of all schools. So I would say that and people would say, you know, would just say, well, I don't think schools should be like that. but why not treat what schools are like and how, and then look at how the parents, the governors and the teachers of this school have used that character to engage the parents of the, with the school to produce those results. So although I am secular, one of the things I wanted to know is, well, how has the school been so successful? It's been so successful because it 
addressed and engaged the cultural and religious heritages of the children, made them comfortable with the school and their parents comfortable with the school. And I would say to, again, to, look, uh, my children, they went to school. Everything they did in the school, they experienced things that were completely familiar to them from home. Said every school, every child has the right to bring their whole self to school. By insisting upon secularism, you are denying the right of some children to bring their whole self into school and to see themselves recognised within that school. And if you want to know why the children did well in that school, is they were recognised and they were given confidence in themselves, who they were, and that their ambitions for themselves were appropriate and proper and supported by the school. It was absolutely fantastic. Just one slight anecdote. I was told the teacher said, well, I said, you know, how do you do this? Well, parents would come and say that they didn't, you know, because that became part of the story in Birmingham. Look, these parents are backward. They've come from uh, rural Pakistan. They uh, don't really understand what the demands of education are. So they said, well, we went to the homes of the children, we spoke to the parents. The parents said, well, what do they... And we went and looked in the homes to find a space that the children could work, work out how they could fit in around the... and, and told the, you know, how that could be done. So they were fully engaged with the parents and the parents were fully engaged with them. And so one of the things I say, you don't have a successful school just because you have good teachers or good governors and senior leaders in the school, you have a successful school because the parents themselves become committed to the school, in a sense, recognise what that school is giving to their children. So it's an unbelievably precious and significant thing. And I, you know, I, I was looking at thinking, well, I'm just really looking at one or two schools, but it seemed to me to carry such a big sociological issue was in this small community school, what they were doing, how they were treated, and what it said about the rest of us that we couldn't recognise and get beyond prejudice, whether that prejudice was the prejudice of class, this was a poor community, or the prejudice of ethnicity, or the prejudice of religion. In our day-to-day, in our lived experience of the convivial aspect of it so we can overcome certain things but when it tips into the mainstream and so how the media would interpret like an idea of a takeover the idea of a fifth column or the idea of somehow british values are being eroded so idea of notions of fair play if the schools are coming to the parents of the muslim parents and talking to them about how to how to make a better school how comes in so for example whitechapel how comes english teachers not coming to see me talk about my schools because in the interest of fair play wouldn't we all do that those ideas of british values rub up against each other so it's almost like a double bind like so we can live in this convivial space can i just bring in another point here that i think this comes down to where we have to talk about prejudice and racism and islamophobia because 
from what I didn't go to private school, but from what I've heard <laughs> and what I've read about private schools and how cultures run within that, that is very much adhering to the cultural sensitivities of white middle class people in a lot of private schools in the UK, then that that process definitely happens that process of having a close relationship with parents and the schools and the young people and sort of celebrating their identity and creating these embedded notions of meritocracy that's something embedded I feel in in a lot of part in a lot of sections of different parts of school and within the UK I think the issue here I don't disagree with your point T but I think ultimately the issue was always that these were Muslim kids these were Muslim families schools and one of the first things that governors at the school sort of challenge was that the job experience programs were about working in uh, corner stores, going along to uh, transport and so on. Not that these are not uh, decent jobs, but they didn't send the children to a solicitor's office or to a hospital to learn about nursing and learn about becoming a doctor and, and, and so on. So that there was they approached the school with a view that because of it was in a poor area, the parents wouldn't have rich aspirations. And they did have big aspirations for their children. Confidence in themselves as parents, but looking to the school to provide you know, guidance and a framework whereby their uh, children uh, could succeed. So there was nothing that the school uh, did which was unusual. And I think you're, I mean, uh, I didn't go to a private school either, but um, there's nothing the school did that wouldn't be done by teachers at other schools. It's just that typically you haven't had Muslim teachers who would feel comfortable about going into homes. I mean, I know after a while, you know, well, as a sociologist, well, what would I expect going to homes, uh, you know, of uh, people unlike me? And what I discover is, well, actually, there were people like me, exactly like the home that I was, you know, came from, it wasn't, there weren't really these differences there that, uh, that everybody, you know, has, you know, tends to exaggerate. You know, the parents were looking for guidance and all schools should, uh, should be able to, you know, provide uh, that guidance. But partly it came because teachers wanted to be live and teach in schools that were in their area. Previously, both the governors and the teachers at the school lived away and were commuting in to teach in Alum Rock, were not themselves part of Alum Rock. You know, imagine the difference when you a teacher can bump into the parents of a child shopping on a Saturday. And, you know, you have a different kind of, interaction and a, and a recognition that the school is genuinely a community school. But what I think is awful about the way the press responded to it, okay, there was a takeover of schools. So just imagine now that you've got a school that is one of the most successful schools in the country 
And you have got other schools facing similar sorts of problems to those uh, schools. Tissot has already mentioned, well, there might be schools, white working class children facing the same issue. But they're not really going to contact a successful school catering to Muslim pupils to learn how to do it. But schools in Oldham and Bradford are going to learn about what's going on in this school and make contact. So you are going to have a network of people interested in the the problems of underachievement by uh, Muslim pupils looking to how to succeed it. So you'll be able to show those kinds of connections and networks, which is what the Clark Review did. But the next question to ask, but how do you take over a school? You know, I could say, well, it'd be great. I would run a a network of socialist schools. How would I do it? The only way you can take over a school is through the academies program. That means that you get asked to take over a school. Why do you get asked to take over a school? Because you're successful. And what are they asking you to do? They're asking you to introduce your practices into those other schools. They're not asking you to Islamicize the school. They're asking you to successify the school by introducing good practice. So Parkview had been identified. They didn't wish to do all this extension because they were a small school. So they had three schools. There was a fourth school that they were asked to take over, but they were scheduled that would they perhaps take over up to 10 schools all Muslim majority schools. So why was no journalist saying, how can this takeover happen? Well, it could only happen with the authority of the Department for Education. Then you ask the next question, and therefore, what connections were had? Where are all the minutes and memos recording these meetings? Nobody asked that question. None of them are published in the Clark Report. So all these accusations, when the cases finally collapse, they collapse because some of this material comes out that shows that the things that they were being accused of, placing people into schools, were done with the express approval of the school improvement officials at the Department for Education. Now, for me, that's the job of a journalist to, you know, know, even a sociologist could see that. So a journalist ought to see that as the key aspect of the story. And they just published uh, the same thing. So even The Guardian, which I would say had the best reporting at the time. Even The Guardian said, well, we don't think it's an issue of extremism. We think it's an issue of poor governance. So the schools have been allowed to get, you know, implying that schools were badly run and they've been allowed to get away with stuff. They think this is the most successful, one of the most successful schools in Britain. It is not badly run. There is no problem of leadership in the school. And when you look at the Ofsted reports, of course, when the school is described as failing in order to close it down, they can't accuse it of poor leadership. 
and they can't excuse it of poor results. They have to come up with the pupils were insufficiently safeguarded from religious extremism. A story that should have been very easy to tell if uh, people were being willing to sympathise and just say, well, what if the school is a good school? What would it be if we just looked at an alternative narrative for why these connections were there, why it was taking over schools and so on? A story of success is turned into a story of failure. Tiso and I have been talking to Pat Thompson about schools and corruption and like academies and it's really interesting like thinking about that previous episode and like what we're talking to you about now John because actually like the schools were just operating within the terrain of the Department of Education and what they had deemed to be acceptable governance practices. And like you can have faith schools, you can have religious schools. No school is secular, as you say, Mm -hmm. as well. And it's like all of that gets completely misappropriated and misconstrued. And is just presented in these very, I just, I know I keep saying like, yeah, it's just, it's just, for me, it's just pure Islamophobia, like that's from the top all the way to the bottom, like. But within the context that like, so David Cameron said, like, we shouldn't be ashamed of being a Christian country. So there is also this othering, like from the top down to the bottom, even though it's government policy to, so secularism would also have this idea, or like it's a, it's a kind of like a neutral value. It's a, little, it's like a neutral value. So we, we want to encourage everyone to have a play, but even the wording you, you described on that in general, it should be Christian, but we make allowances. So that fits in the liberal agenda of a, of a modern liberal state. But equally, the, there's other ideas that sit behind it. Like a liberal state has to be, by definition, Christian. And if you look at the kind of far-right agitators, that they would say that their voices are being nullified and this Christian idea, this Christian identity is being kept to the side. Now, obviously there's problematic, but there, there is this narrative that runs through there, right? Yeah, I mean, I do think it's interesting because, um, I mean, there's a current debate about the census and about the recording mm-hmm. of religion within the census. And what you notice, what, or what I've noticed and what the Trojan horse shared to me is that... Uh, Muslims are not hostile to Christianity. They're not hostile to people being Christian. They understand what it is. The group that's most hostile to Christianity are white liberals and others who don't attend church, don't don't, uh, participate in Christianity, but are willing to promote it as a heritage And whereas Muslims, I think, are completely sympathetic to it as a lived experience and as a sense of belonging, affirmation that uh, is a a source of comfort and so on for those who uh, engage with it. So I think there's a, I mean, we do talk about, I mean, I do think it's important to take about race and I think it's important to talk about Islamophobia but there's also a hostility to religion that is there and of people who think, well, actually, you know, we anticipated Britain to become increasingly secular and we discover that behind us there's a group who are not secular 
And not only are they not secular, but they're the wrong religion too. So we don't mind Christians because we understand the mechanism by which Christians come like us, secular, but we're not sure whether these Muslims, these Hindus, and sort of Jews will become secular in the same way. So it is interesting. The other schools about which there's anxiety in Britain at the moment are Haredi schools. And you notice in the reporting of COVID, there's a very low-level concern about uh, ultra-Orthodox uh, Jewish communities. And it, it just that there's this sense of unease about that kind of radical difference and uh you know i i say to you know people when they talk oh well you know because there was a piece in the observer two weeks ago about uh people not getting vaccinated or being vaccine uh hesitant and they used alan rock again and you know trojan horse and so well you can understand why people in Alam Rock are hesitant about vaccines in a context of being one of the most surveilled communities in uh, England. Uh, Project Champion, which was the cameras all around the area, that took place in 2010. So you have a series of episodes like that. Then the article ended on a hospital a really deep hostility to religion and let's bring the whole rotten structure of religion down. And you think, surely somebody can do two things at once, pray and get a vaccine. It's not as if getting a vaccine, you know, it's either or. You can, you know, all of us engage in certain kinds of magical practices alongside scientific things. We touch wood and we... You know, do all kinds of statements that indicate that where there are areas of anxiety, we seek reassurance and agency. And waiting for the vaccine isn't an agency position. So, thinking, well, in the meantime, I'll have the vaccine. I'll have the vaccine when it's ready, and I'll pray. These are not mutually exclusive things. But we're getting such that that's, uh, you know, that's uh, presented. And it is damaging to all of us because one of the things to show, try to show is that when you move from through prevent the introduction of counter-extremism, we're now in a situation where measures about extremism are including anti-capitalism, Black Lives Matter, environmental action and so on. These are all now, according to the government, examples of extremism. Even believing in institutional racism is an example of extremism. So you're supposed to teach in the schools to respect British institutions, regardless of whether they're worthy of respect. An institution without institutional racism, I can respect an institution with institutional racism, I can't respect. The fact that it's British doesn't make it worthy of respect. It's that it meets certain requirements of equality, just treatment, and so on. That's worthy of respect. And that is how we should be. But what we're getting is for the idea of trying to protect people 
from radicalization, we've all of us become unprotected from authoritarianism. <laughs> Sick. <laughs> Sick. <laughs> That's Sick. That's so powerful, John. Oh my God. Wow people for years and years have been warning about this john yourself included and we're here yeah we are trojan horse affair is just um, another micro example of warnings of what was happening the response to the um trojan horse affair and how it became a moral panic in the context of europe there's always been radicals age of revolution is a radical movement right but there's always been a pushback from first the aristocracy then the middle classes throughout the throughout the ages so is this part of the historical process working it working itself out overcoming domination is always a struggle Mm -hmm. that is that you it's not something that's granted it's something that has to be won and it has to be won by rights and demanding uh to be included so Britain as an empire. So I think we are living in a post-imperial, post-colonial situation. Britain as empire was a multicultural entity. There was absolutely no difficulty at all in Britain running a political organisation, the empire, that had the highest proportion of Muslims globally in it. The only problem is multicultural equality, not multicultural inequality and multicultural domination. So what happens in the context after empire, essentially the post-war period in in Britain, there is a, a need to address the hierarchies and inequalities that exist locally amongst the different communities in Britain. And in the area of education, that includes underachievement by ethnic minorities and so on. Demanding the right to be equal gets presented by those who are dominant as a challenge to their privileges. So it is a conflict between rights and privileges, uh, an assertion of multicultural equality. That's why when the government declared multiculturalism to be dead, it declared multiculturalism to be dead in order to reinscribe hierarchy and to reinscribe the idea of British values. There's no way the values in question are British. They are, you know, I mean, equality, liberty, rule of law, religious tolerance. These are all pretty standard liberal procedural values. Putting British in front of them, as opposed to simply saying, well, we're going to teach these values as important values for any citizen, putting British in front of them says that there are some people to whom these values come naturally and other people for whom they have to be inculcated into those values and also presents religion, despite religious tolerance being there, presents religion as an obstacle to equal treatment. That's what's going on there, and that's why we pay really close attention to the fact that uh, what has happened is in Alam Rock was parents claiming the right 
for a proper education on behalf of their children. And that was pushed back. John, I'm giving you a Surviving Society mic drop for that. That was... <laughs> that was... <laughs> it was sick, man. It was sick. Ooh. That was serious. <laughs> serious. Yeah, um, was serious, man. John, because we do like to talk about some of the actors, the key actors that are involved in some of these things. Could you describe to our listeners with regards to the Trojan Horse Affair, some of the roles that Michael Gove, Theresa May and Nick Timothy played. Okay, so Timothy is in a sense a red Tory from based within uh, a white working class area of Birmingham. So that's part of his background. Uh, I would call him to some degree a traditional one nation Tory, but where that nation is a white nation. That's uh, Nick Timothy. Nick Timothy is in the Home Office with Theresa May. Just before the um, Trojan horse affair broke, um, David Cameron announced he wasn't going to stand as leader for a second time. So he set in motion uh, a lead, uh, a sort of leadership race that was taking place behind the scenes. And Michael Gove and uh, Nick Timothy, uh, or uh, Theresa May, were actively sort of jockeying for position. In 2011, Theresa May did a review of the Prevent Strategy. And in the review of the Prevent Strategy, raised the issue of, because it was reviewing across different uh, activities, She looked at education and she said, is there a problem in education? She said she didn't think there was a problem in education, except that the regulatory frameworks for education were chaotic, partly because academy schools, local authority schools, free schools, independent schools, and so on, all with different uh, frameworks. And particularly as... uh, Michael Gove was pursuing a militant policy against local authorities, trying to accelerate the academy's programme, and also a militant uh, policy against school teacher, you know, the profession and so on. He famously called the profession the blob, uh, indicating it's hostile. So when the Trojan horse affair uh, hit, Michael Gove was sitting in a situation where, in a sense, Theresa May had predicted there might be something that happened in education, even though there was no current evidence that something was happening in education. So this was the event that could potentially knock apart uh, Michael Gove's uh, leadership bid. Michael Gove, I think, is, and I'm going to say this very, very carefully, so as not, it's as if he draws upon some of the themes that uh, Enoch Powell drew upon. Of course, Powell is a figure within the West Midlands because of where he was based. Powell went to be a representative of unionism in Northern Ireland, and you see how Brexit... Northern Ireland, the DUP, Michael Gove's relationship to to the DUP plays out. So if you go back and look at 
the first usage of the Trojan horse by Michael Gove. It's in the, for an article for Policy Exchange in the context of the Good Friday Agreement, calling it a Trojan horse for Irish republicanism. So he already has this kind of arguments going. Then he writes Celsius, uh, whatever they did the book, which is the Trojan horse of uh, uh, Muslims in Britain and, and so on, feeding from the uh, policy exchange and Henry Jackson society, clash of civilizations, Islamophobic uh, playbook. And then uh, Trojan horse is suddenly the Trojan horse is outside his office saying it was you who, you know, and everybody's saying it's you who let the Trojan horse in. So he acts incredibly decisively without regard for any due process, I would say. And he can do that because the nature of governance of education for academy schools means that any school that has left become an academy is directly under Michael Gove. All the bodies writing reports, so Ofsted, the Education Funding Agency, uh, the Clark Report, these are all directly appointed by Gove or our agencies within the uh, Department for Education. The body that brings uh, the misconduct cases against the teachers an agency of the Department for Education. That's what I mean. So I would say there's authoritarianism in Britain in terms of the uh, uh, ideologies at the centre, but there's also authoritarianism in terms of the centralisation of political processes that gives a minister the power to direct agencies and bodies against a school and with there being very little pushback against that, except the media. But the media itself is being, is itself infiltrated by people from Policy Exchange, Henry Jackson Society, and so on. So it's being given uh, the stories to brief against the school uh, uh, and so on. So it's an extraordinary tale of... I think, authoritarian governance. And I'd go even further and say, if you were wanting to know why certain aspects of COVID-19 have been handled really badly in Britain, let's give some examples. School meals, computers for disadvantaged children, and so on. It's because all local networks have been abolished. So there is no local authority with responsibility for schools in a particular area. An academy trust can span, you know, a lot of academy trusts have schools more than 50 miles apart. So the idea that you have an effective local governance, that's what is missing in Britain. So we're authoritarian in structures, authoritarian in ideology and we've hollowed out civil society because that's in effect what happens when you remove local authorities and local participation in schools 
And when you hollow out civil society, that's when you get uh, the possibility of populism as well. So Michael Gove is both an authoritarian and a populist uh, uh, politician. That's actually the same. Just so clear, but the the what's troubling about how clear it is is because we're living it and we're in the middle of it and it can still get worse. So some of the people on the fringes that we would disregard are saying similar things, right? They are saying that the government is becoming more authoritarian. However, mm -hmm. there is an ideological bent to sometimes what they're saying, but there's a sense that people are saying this. So you might see from those kind of recent marches, there's a coalition of people, but they're all sensing there's a, a sense that government structures are feeling authoritarian, but for different reasons. Is this an awakening across society that people are, are understanding I think we're definitely seeing more coalitions on the left coming together talking about this. But one of the things that I've been slightly disappointed by is the sort of free speech people, particularly those that take interest in free speech that happens in education, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. are all extremely quiet at the moment. I thought you wanted a quote unquote freedom. Are they just showing us that they just wanted freedom to be bigots? Like, is it actually that they're concerned about civil mm -hmm. society or that it's about something more sinister than that? And I think their lack of commitment to the conversations that happen at the moment i mean this episode will come out in april so let's just see but where are they well i think where they are is lobbying around the non-violent extremism agenda so i think two things are going on one is to argue for free speech and the other is to limit the area that free speech can be applied to so you know Obviously, you know, you see that in terms of, you know, criticisms of cancel culture, but at the same time, publishing reports about, uh, uh, you know, changes to the curriculum to decolonize the curriculum. Well, if, you know, that's official cancelling on the part of, you know, bodies, I hesitate to come back to policy exchange again, but it's policy exchange that runs quite a lot of these uh, these kinds uh, of policies. People across the, you know, political spectrum are worried about it. So, I mean, I don't know whether you know, but I, I should come, you know, clean uh, about it. But so one of the journalists that I work with is Peter Oborn, who's a leading conservative journalist, but the fiercest critic of the undermining of social structures he believes in, whether that's the courts, parliamentary system, independent journalism, and so on. So it's possible to be able to have coalitions across, you know, political differences on the basis of a commitment to speech, because speech is how uh, differences become resolved, discussed, and so on. So a lot of the uh, free speech debate is, I'm afraid, uh, a debate about the freedom to shout somebody else down. And what I've said before is that actually, and particularly in the case in Birmingham, what you see is if you're poor, if you're marginal, if you're ethnic minority, you don't have a huge amount of free speech. And when you do exp uh, express yourself, you tend <laughs> to express yourself civilly. So you never 
here in civil speech. You know, you might not agree with what is being said, but it's said in the context of wishing to persuade, wishing to debate, and so on. But what you've got now is a is a form of argument. There are some views which, I mean, the language is we have to challenge the views. Well, you know, partly, okay, some things you'd want to challenge, but sometimes I want to listen before I challenge. I want the possibility of, you know, of, of learning. You know, I, uh, within, you know, I mean, uh, my, uh, well, it's, terrible to say it's a, a, a favourite thing, but uh, because it has such a poignant consequence. One of the pieces in the Trojan Horse play, the Farah, the girl, is talking about the impact of the Trojan Horse affair on her. And she says at one point, you know, I need my religion, I need my school. And she says it in the context of the call to prayer and how she experiences the call to prayer. It's a very brave, you know, because the call to prayer, that's serious sort of religion. And she says, the call to prayer made me feel calm and peaceful. And you think, on what possible basis would you be hostile to a 15-year-old girl's wish to experience calm during the school day and telling you something that you can't hear or you don't know that that's what the impact of prayer is. That's what the impact of having your religion recognised. She needed that and she needed her school. It wasn't a case that the religion was in one position, the school was somewhere else and she should separate them off. Secular people like myself find it easy to separate the things off. And the reason why we do is because we don't believe in one of them. So we're not actually separating things off. If you have religious faith, you wish it to influence other different aspects of your life. And what right do any of us, in a sense, have to deny somebody that sense of being, of being calm? Least of all, a school child. You know, why are we so threatened by that school child's moment of peace? I mean, that, that's what I found, you know, really the most, you know, shocking uh, thing. And in the play, she's great because she's also incredibly feisty as, <laughs> as well. So, I mean, none of these things are uh, mutually exclusive. John, that was such an amazing episode. Thank you so much for coming on the show, schooling us, educating us on this. It's been absolutely brilliant. Thank you so much. Thank you, oh, thank you for coming on. Cheers. Listeners, thank you for joining us and patrons. Um, we've got another episode for you. See you again next week. Thank you for listening to Surviving Society with Chantal and Tiso. You can now continue the conversation with us on Twitter and Instagram. If you enjoy the podcast and find it useful for your ever-expanding sociological imagination, please support us via Patreon. If not, you can always support us by sharing, subscribing, rating and reviewing. 